We pick up where we left off last Wednesday as we finished up chapter six, uh, picking up in Luke chapter seven, verse one. It says there in Luke seven, verse one, now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. If you've noticed, a lot of the gospel story happens in the little town of Capernaum, and that's the one that would be cursed because they had more miracles done there than anywhere else. Jesus did a ton of miracles in Capernaum, and yet there was still unbelief, which is kind of shocking. And Jesus would say, you know, it's better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. And so he would curse uh, Capernaum, Bethsaida, um, Chorazin, these little towns received all these miracles but rejected Jesus. Um, one of the things we've talked about many times is, you know, miracles never really produce faith, um, as it turns out. Uh, people can see all kinds of miracles, but they still won't believe in the Lord. Um, that's, that happened in the Old Testament, and it happens here in the New as well. So uh, Capernaum means village of Nahum. Now, whether this is the Nahum of the prophets of old, it's doubtful. People don't really know for sure. But, um, but Jesus would... Uh, meet people right here in Capernaum and a lot of hurting people. In fact, in Luke chapter seven, we have four people that are hurting and dealing with difficulties. Uh, it's a good chapter, by the, by the way, to read if you're going through difficulties yourself. You'll find uh, Luke seven is an encouraging chapter. You'll see number one, a dying servant uh, in verses one through 10. Then we'll see a grieving widow in verses 11 through 18 a perplexed prophet in verses 19 through 35, and a repentant sinner in verses 36 through 50. So let's break this down into those four things. The first one is the dying servant, um, starting out here really in verse two, um, where we read, and certain, a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him, the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the Sojourian sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. The healing of the centurion servant. We looked at this in Matthew's gospel in depth. It's a great story. Um, there's several new things that we see here that are kind of important. Luke gives us greater detail in this little story of the centurion's servant. But, um, you know, a Roman soldier, the, the, probably the biggest shocking thing about this is the Roman soldier that the Jews actually liked. The Jews actually come saying, hey, this guy's worthy of being helped. Um, which is funny, here's the Jews determining who's worthy. Uh, now, question, who is really worthy of being helped by Jesus? 
No one, zero, zilch. That's an important thing to understand. None of us are worthy. Um, some people think you have to become worthy to uh, enter into Christ or to become a Christian or to even go to church. Maybe before you were saved, you thought, well, I would go to church, but I'm so bad and I'm so sinful. I'm sure that if I come to church, the lightning bolt will strike the very seat that I'm sitting in at Athey Creek there because of all those righteous people. I'm not worthy to enter into the Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Uh, the truth is no one is worthy to come to Christ but that's not the requirement, you know. Um, it's, it's interesting that this centurion even knew that he wasn't worthy, even though they said he was worthy. He said, man, I'm not even worthy that you come into my house. You know, you might misunderstand the centurion's attitude because not only does he not go find Jesus himself, he sends his servants to go find Jesus. And the Jews, they, they, they're kind of the ones doing the work for him. Then Jesus is on the way and he sends another group saying, you don't even have to go take another step. Just say the word. Um, uh, you might think, well, man, he's pretty pious or pompous to not think that he has to go talk to Jesus. Um, <clears throat> but I do wonder, why, why wouldn't he go out and see Jesus? Uh, the, the fact is, I think we can assume that he's got a good heart on this. Um, and it's because Jesus marvels at his faith. So that's a good way to understand, wow, he's probably doing something right here, this servant, uh, or pardon me, the centurion. Um, what is, what is he doing right? Well, he's, he knows that Jesus has authority, <coughs> excuse me, and he also believes in the power of Jesus' just ability to speak the word and it's a done deal. I mean, this is the faith that Jesus marvels at. Uh, another thing we know and we looked at on Sunday is this, um, this is a guy who says he uh, loves the nation of the Jews uh, and he built them a synagogue. We made that kind of our text on Sunday and, and we asked the question from, here's a Roman who loved the Jews, what a shocker. So we asked the question this weekend, should we care about the Jews? And I think it was one of the more important teachings we've done, especially as it relates to the current events going around the world today. I love how where you're at in the Bible is where we're at in life. Um, there was a lot of people that saw Sunday's message in a different light though. Let me read to you some Google reviews. <laughs> from Sunday. First church I've ever walked out of. The sermon touched on the Bible for a mere 30 seconds at most. While the quote pastor, unquote, um, spent the remainder of his time giving a political lecture of such poor rhetorical quality I could not divine, uh, he spelled single wrong, single <laughs> actionable point from it. Vacus excuse for a sermon. <laughs> uh, I felt closer to Jesus playing uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 than I did attending this church. Avoid this political propagandist, quote, pastor, unquote. Um, this is a young guy that plays a little too much video games, I think. He needs to read a book, maybe check some spelling. He said, this church does not, capital N-O-T, preach the Bible or about God. The, quote, sermon I attended was nothing short of political propaganda. They're supposedly going verse by verse through the book of Luke. Instead, pastor read the verse at the start of the quote sermon, unquote, but did not say a single word about it after that. He in, uh, instead picked and pulled verses from several books that had nothing to do with the verse in Luke and used them to prove his political argument. He played news clips on TV screens rather than read from the word of God. 
wow, I think maybe he walked out two minutes into the sermon, I'm pretty sure, because I actually read seven other scriptures related to that verse, seven from Isaiah, from Romans, seven, and each of the seven had four or five verses. I would venture to say I read more scripture than pretty much just about any other pastor out there on a Sunday morning, I'll just say. Uh, check your numbers on that, but um, what, what was the, what's the deal with this? Uh, and I could go on, there's actually more of these Google reviews that give the one star, you know, one star. I, I actually do wonder sometimes if these reviews actually help us sometimes. Because if people read that, they're gonna think, wow, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of strange. Like, what a strange thing. Now, I hope, that, I hope that these people will actually come around. I actually am praying for these guys because um, there's a blindness. Um, you know, what we talked about wasn't political. What we talked about on Sunday was very biblical. Um, what do you do about Israel is extremely biblical. The Bible talks more about Israel and how we think of and what we do with the Jewish people. Um, and people that don't know their Bibles don't realize this is a huge issue, especially in the end times. There's actually a judgment where God's gonna judge people based on how they treated the Jews. Like it's an amazingly important topic and it's not political, it's biblical. So I, but the reason I share these with you is not, I'm not complaining. I mean, I get, I get this stuff all the time, but, but I just wanna say, one of the things we've been talking about is how you, ne you need to be ready to get this kind of a reaction today. Um, isn't it funny how the world's kind of shocked at how, how many anti-Semitic people there are out there, but people shouldn't be shocked. We've been talking about this uh, very boldly in prophecy updates and talking about the world scene for a long time about how anti-Semitism is on the rise. And now it's like everybody's shocked. Oh, I can't believe how many anti-Semitic people there are now that the war has started and everything. And it's just, it's only confirming that I believe we're living in the last days. It's gonna get worse than what we're seeing right now. The Bible tells us that to where the whole world's gonna set their armies toward Jerusalem ultimately. That's the way it's gonna end. Um, so we know the, the end of the story, but you will be tested as a Christian uh, to be able to say some of the stuff we were talking about on Sunday. Well, for a lot of people, they will reject that. And, and you know what's interesting? It's not just the secularist, it's the so-called Christian church. And I say so-called because I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I know there's probably people saved that go to churches that hate Israel. I understand that. The anti-Semitism that comes from replacement theology. Um, you know, I, I, I don't believe, you know, that uh, loving Israel or caring about Israel uh, is what calls you saved or not saved. Um, that's that's your, your belief and acceptance of Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins. Um, but, but the truth is, I, I believe where that leads a person, when they have anti-Semitism in their heart, uh, or they you know, disregard much of the Bible, it's gonna totally change your worldview and lead you on a path that could lead you to destruction. It's a dangerous game to play. So I'm just reminding you as Christians, we need to be bold. And, and this centurion is a beautiful picture here of, uh, of a Gentile who loved Israel and Jesus blessed his socks off. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons. Uh, Jesus says, man, I've never seen such a great faith. No, not in all of Israel, this Gentile who loves the nation, who believed in Jesus. But also one of the things, you know, we, again, we looked at this in detail on the story, but um, you know, I, I, I think that this is kind of cool because this makes Jesus marvel. And I mentioned this in Matthew, but I wanna say it again. What makes God marvel? Uh, you know, the word marvel is kind of go, wow, that's amazing to, to just kind of stand back and go, this is kind of something you don't see every day. Um, what, what makes God marvel? Because it tells us right here that verse nine, Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. 
What makes God marvel? Well, here it's the faith of a Gentile, believing uh, that Jesus has the power to speak the word and it's, it's a done deal. That, that's incredible faith. Uh, the second thing that makes God marvel, interestingly enough, the Bible tells us, is unbelief. So here Jesus marvels for the guy's belief. But do you remember in Mark chapter six, verse five and six, it says there that Jesus could do no mighty work at that town because he laid hands on a few people and healed the sick and stuff. But he marveled because of their unbelief and he went around the villages teaching. So, so when does God marvel? He marvels at great faith, but he also marvels at unbelief. And uh, that's, that's an interesting comparison. I think that's, that's kind of what you're gonna see in this big dispute between the uh, Jews and the uh, Hamas and whether you're, you're a, one who believes God has a plan for Israel and still calls them the chosen people, or if you do not. And what will make God marvel about you, your unbelief or your belief? That's the question. Well, this Gentile, uh, he loved the Jews and he had faith in Christ. Um, and, and there's another thing that we see here that's kind of unique about this miracle. Jesus heals the servant remotely, um, the centurion servant. Um, there's another time, by the way, in the Bible, Jesus remotely healed um, the Gentile woman's daughter in Matthew 15, 28, who was delivered from a demon. If you remember, in both cases, Jesus wasn't there at the scene, but he just kind of spoke the word and it was a done deal. Um, and... Uh, and this is, this is something that I think is, is really uh, important to see how, you know, we, we, we think, oh, is this a hard one for God? Uh, is this, you know, whether you're praying for cold or praying for cancer, is anything too hard for the Lord? And sometimes we think, well, how could he do it? You know, how could he heal it? Well, you know, just the spoken word, Jesus has the power. He spoke the worlds into existence. Um, you know, just said, let there be light. And there was light. Uh, that's a big deal. And so we, we have to remember the God we serve is powerful. Um, now, it's interesting because in this idea of the, of the church of Jesus Christ, um, the Gentile church, and what we talked about on Sunday is um, the Jews and, and this whole thing of uh, Jews, Gentiles, and then the church. There's actually, it seems, in God's economy, three groups in the world, Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Once you accept Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, guess what? You're a new person. You're no longer Jew. You're no longer Gentile. You are called the church of Jesus Christ. Um, where the replacement theology people go wrong is they say the church then replaced the Jews altogether. Um, nope, there's still three groups. Right now, there's largely unbelieving, well, they're all unbelieving Jews that are part of the Jewish people. If a Jew believes in Jesus the Messiah, they're part of the church of Jesus Christ. Um, but there's still Jews and there's still Gentiles and then there's people that are saved, Christians. Uh, those are the three. Um, and, and some people get this wrong. Like, you know, there's key scriptures that you need to probably um, remember is, for example, Ephesians chapter two, verse 11 through 16. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hand. So the contention between the Jews and the Gentiles. That verse 12, that um, at that time you were without Christ, the Gentiles, being aliens from that commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off, that's the Gentiles, were made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made um, both one and have broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished 
in his flesh, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain or of two, one new man, so making peace. So this idea of, you know, the Lord taking Jews and Gentiles when they accept Christ, they're one new person uh, and they're called the church. Galatians 3 verses 26 through 29, you should know this as well. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. <coughs> there is, for the, for the church we should say here, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then, you're, then, you, um, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this is where we're grafted into the vine of the, of the Jews as a Christian church. Um, this is an important thing to not be confused by. Remember, that's why we talked about this on Sunday. Don't be ignorant, don't be arrogant. The Bible says that over and over again about the Jews. Um, so that's kind of an important thing. Well, these Gentiles, some of the greatest shocks in the New Testament are the uh, Gentiles that are, um, saved or encouraged or healed. Um, and one of the interesting things about these centurions in the Bible is they're often good guys. The Roman soldiers were not known for their goodness. They were brutal. And the Roman empire was evil and horrible. And the poor Jews had been under the oppression of the Romans for a long, long time. But often in the Bible, when we talk about a centurion, we've got these dudes that just were solid dudes uh, for some reason. You know, who was the Gentile, the first Gentile to be converted into Christianity? Is that, anybody remember? Cornelius, correct, down there in Joppa. Uh, a little guy, um, you know, um, uh, Simon the Tanner. Peter was at his house. And remember Peter saw the sheet, you know, Rise, Peter, kill it. Not so, Lord, these are unclean meats. And the Lord says, don't call unclean that which I've made clean. And he was preparing Peter to deal with these unclean goyim, the Gentiles who ate uh, shellfish and, and uh, did all, you know, all kinds of things that were wrong, had hamburgers with cheese on them and stuff like that. Uh, these Gentiles. And Peter's like, not so. And the Lord says, nope. And so then he goes up to Caesarea and, and meets Cornelius, the first convert to Christianity uh, there in Acts chapter 10. Also another uh, centurion that was with Paul was a guy named Julius uh, in Acts chapter 27, another good dude. There was the centurion at the cross, Mark chapter 15, who said, truly this man was the son of God. Um, you know, so it's interesting, you know, there in verse four, um, the, the, the people, they, they love this guy, say he's worthy uh, for whom you should do this thing. Uh, they're well-meaning, the Jews saying that, but he wasn't worthy and even he himself knew that he wasn't in fact worthy. We are not worthy. Hebrews 4.16 um, tells us how we come to the Lord, not because of who we are and how awesome we are, our worthiness, but he said, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We, we, we approach God not based on who we are, but upon who he is and what he does for us. He's the one who gives us mercy. He's the one who gives us grace. That's why we're able to approach him. We don't need to be worthy. Some people have uh, tweaked this verse and made it believe like you have to be worthy to have communion. When you read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And I can see why people have misconstrued that. In the English translation, you kind of miss something. The idea is uh, that you'd think, well, I have to be worthy 
to uh, eat and drink of the cup of Christ and eat the bread of Christ. Um, are any of us really worthy to eat the communion cup or bread? Well, the answer is no, we're all sinners. Yeah, but bread, I was baptized into the church of Jesus Christ and so now I'm worthy. Well, do you understand? There's, a, there's, there's the positional perfection that we have in Christ, that's true. But practically, daily, we still sin, we still make mistakes. Um, and you know, you maybe were baptized back in 84. That's great, that's awesome. And you were declared righteous in Christ and that is what allows you to go to the table. But to, to think that if you come here on a Sunday evening on our Sunday night worship and think, well, I think I'm worthy enough to, to have communion because I've been good this last 30 years, you are sadly mistaken. You've been horrible, worse than you ever thought, uh, except for good news. Um, the idea is you don't go to the table of the Lord because you're worthy. It's actually the opposite. You go to the table of the Lord because you're unworthy and you need to remember what Jesus did for you that made you righteous, the, the work of the cross. So what does this mean then, Brett, if it says if you eat and drink unworthily? The idea is, if you read it in the original Greek text, it's clearer, you, you need to give worth, um, value, to the table. If you're just going flippantly, and the Corinthian church, by the way, they were getting drunk with the communion wine. Uh, they were pushing each other out of the way to get to the communion table. And like, there was a problem. Paul was dealing with a disciplinary problem in the Corinthian church. And he's, he's saying, don't come to the table uh, flippant or pushing your way or drinking, the, well, let's get a little more of this communion. Let's make our communion cups bigger. Um, you know, the, there was some weirdness going on with the Corinthians. So they were not giving value to what the communion table actually meant. You might say unworthily. They were not giving worth or value to it. So the idea is to, the idea is to come sob, uh, you know, sober, vigilant, uh, reverent, with an attitude of repentance and a heart toward the Lord, giving value and worth uh, to the table. If you're flippantly doing it, you're guilty. You're guilty of sin, which is the very thing that put Christ on the cross, if you're coming flippantly. That's kind of the idea. Um, it's interesting, you know, not that you have to be worthy and pure. You know, uh, John the Baptist, who was the greatest man, according to Jesus, born among women, in um, Luke chapter three, verse 16, even he said, but there's one mightier that I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. John the Baptist, the greatest guy, knew that he was not the greatest guy. He said, I am not even worthy to loose his um, you know, shoes. Um, that's, that's the key. Understanding John the Baptist had it right. We are to know that Christ is the one who's worthy. He died for the unworthy, that's us. And he makes us worthy in the sense that we're imputed righteousness is put upon you. Uh, that's something God gives to you as a gift. Praise the Lord for that. So, um, so Jesus marvels at this uh, centurion. Um, I, I do wonder what, why did he marvel? You know, because there's a lot of cool things here. I'd be marveling that he's a, a Gentile that loves Jesus. I'd, I'd marvel that he's a Roman who loves the Jews. Um, I'd marvel that he's a Roman soldier and he still has a conscience and he's actually a guy of an integrity. Like that's something worth marveling. That'd be like, um, you know, finding a lawyer who loves the Lord or something. No, just kidding for the lawyers in here. Uh, no, you know, the, there's some people that kind of have an occupation, you know, like what, what, they're, they're hard, they're, they're, a Roman soldier is the last place you'd look for a guy of integrity and what have you. Um, so uh, maybe that's, or maybe that he was a wealthy man because the centurion was more wealthy than everybody else on the, on the team. The centurions uh, had more money, usually had a nicer home. Uh, they were paid well. And um, 
And riches are not usually a spiritual advantage. Maybe Jesus is marveling that he's a powerful, wealthy guy who still has humility and believes. Um, but but I, I have to say, of, of all the things that maybe Jesus is marveling at, maybe it's the fact that he has confidence, not in himself, but confidence in Christ's ability to speak the word, and, it, and it's a done deal. He says, all Jesus has to do, he tells his servants, just tell Jesus, don't even go to my house. All you have to do is just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And, and you know, this is where you kind of think, where did this Roman guy learn? And let's use some Christian lingo here. Where did the Roman guy learn that Jesus is the living word of God? Because that's what he believed of him, that Jesus could just speak the word and the power of God would be unfolding right there. That's some faith right there. And maybe that's what uh, Christ was marveling I wonder, would the Lord marvel at Athey Creek because of our great faith or would he marvel because of our unbelief? Those are the two things that make God marvel we talked about. Um, but that's what I see, this, this story of the centurion. I love it. It's a great reminder of true faith, just faith in Jesus's power. Don't forget that. What are you suffering from? What are your needs? Let your requests be made known to God. Um, you know, this is what the Bible tells us to do, to pray. And that's what this Roman centurion does. He asks of Jesus to do something and Jesus very gladly heals his servant. What a great reminder. <coughs> Excuse me, well, um, back to the story. That brings us to the second um, person who's in trouble uh, or in difficult times here in Luke 7. It's verses 11 through 18. We're talking now about the grieving widow. Uh, let's take a look, verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, uh, and many of his disciples went with them and much people. So big crowd coming into Nain. Where's Nain? Well, Nain is located eight miles southeast of Nazareth. Um, it's a small little Arab village in a, the lower region of Galilee. Uh, most Christians don't go and visit that place um, because it's kind of off the beaten path and it's just one of the many places you can go if you go to Israel and, and it's kind of a fun place to visit. There is a little church that's commemorating this, the miracle Jesus is about to do <coughs> that's, that's there. Um, uh, you know, Jesus performed this miracle that we're gonna see uh, 2,000 years ago. And there's, there's still people there that remember that, that miracle uh, in Nain. Um, but there's this huge entourage. It's not just the 12 disciples, but the idea is many people, a crowd of people now are following Jesus into Nain. Uh, and we re continue to read um, in verse 12. It says, now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. And he came and touched the buyer, your margin reads coffin, some of your newer translations. And they that bear him stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up. Thriller. This is a good Halloween message right here. He that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered uh, him to his mother. And there came fear on all. And they glorified God saying this, uh, that a great prophet is risen up among us. And that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about 
And the disciples of John showed him all of these things. Now we'll, we'll take a look at this now. Why do they call it a rumor? There's a rumor that's going around about this Jesus going around. Well, the reason it's called a rumor is because not everything they said of him was true. Uh, this is funny how uh, rumors go around of things being said. <clears throat> but like, for example, when it said that a great prophet is risen among us. Well, that's not really exactly it. Jesus was not a prophet. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah of the Jews. And so the rumor is, wow, there's a prophet. Uh, this, is, this is something that people were quick to assume. You know, the woman of Samaria at the well said, I perceive thou art a prophet. Um, and Jesus didn't say, wrong. No, he, he just, he let her kind of think that for a minute, but then he continued talking with her. And eventually she, she talked about, well, there's one coming who's gonna be basically the Messiah. And, and Jesus said, that's me. And she eventually realized, wow, this is the Messiah, King of the Jews. Big mistake that these guys are making. But notice that there's some people that are saying the right thing. It's a little truth and, and then a little bit of falsity. The falsity is that he's just a prophet. But they also say, the great prophets has risen amongst and, and that God hath visited his people. And that, that's the most true thing that they were saying. Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And now Jesus shows up into their town and heals, raises the guy from the dead. Now, uh, Warren Wearsby, I, I like his commentaries, by the way, if you're, if you're looking for good commentaries. Um, he, he notes that there's always these interesting sets of duos. And I think they're kind of noteworthy. Uh, like in this story, and he does this with a lot of places in the Bible. They're kind of interesting just to observe, but I wanted to point this out, <coughs> excuse me, for your future consideration. Um, duplicates, but in opposition. Similarities and differences in the duplications. Um, in this story, we have two crowds. One crowd is leaving, one crowd is coming. Um, this is interesting. The crowd that's coming is Jesus and the disciples and all the people that are coming in with him. Huge amount of people coming to this little town of Nain just suddenly a population explosion because of the, Jesus is showing up in town. So that's one crowd. The other crowd is leaving. Jesus' crowd is arriving. The other crowd is leaving. Why are they leaving? They're walking out of town and the funeral procession is going. And it says a large group there is going, leaving the town. The arriving group is following Jesus. The leaving group is following a dead man to his grave. The arriving group is rejoicing. The leaving group is weeping. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you start looking at these two groups. Which group are you in? Are you in the Jesus group that's rejoicing and coming and seeing power and goodness? Or are you in the other group that's dealing with death and sadness and fear and, and, uh, and following this, this guy who's dead? Uh, duplication number two on the story. There's two sons in the story. They're the son of the widow who's dead, the son of God, the only begotten son of God. Um, and the Bible takes great care to, to speak about um, widows, by the way, in the Bible. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, the whole chapter talks about how the church should care for the widows. Widows indeed, is they're called. Um, and there's a whole thing about that. Why don't we talk more about widows today? The, the, the reason, I think, is because um, we have programs. We have programs. When a, when a widow in our culture, you know, somebody had health, you know, insurance or, or life insurance and, and there's, there's other ways to take care of people. But uh, I, I still think the church needs to care for the widows. And Athey Creek does our best to care for widows. We do that because it's something we feel like it's something we're supposed to do. Um, the Bible tells us about that. Pure and undefiled religion, James 1, 27, uh, cares for widows and orphans, as it says there. So that's one of the things we look for, ways to help with that. But, um, you know, Jesus has compassion right here on this widow. 
Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. In those days, this poor woman, having lost her husband, that's bad enough, but her full-grown son is now dead. That leaves her alone. In Bible times, this poor widow would have been without help. Um, it was a deadly condition to be a widow without sort of a man there to help provide because it's not like she could go out and just get a job that would make a, a real living. That was just Bible times. It was brutal for widows. Um, but I love how Jesus is compassionate. Um, the son of the widow, he's dead, but he's about to be made alive. The son of God is alive and he's making his way to die on the cross. This is the juxtaposition of the story. It's kind of interesting when you talk about these. First uh, Corinthians 15, 19, if, this, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're all of all men most miserable. But why are we not miserable? Because of the resurrection. Um, you know, First uh, Corinthians 15, that old chapter rejoices that we preach Jesus Christ who is resurrected and made alive. Jesus is the author of life, not death. So this little town, the duplications, <clears throat> you got two crowds, one weeping, one rejoicing. Two sons, one uh, dead, the other one full of life and power. Duplication number three, we have two sufferers. We have the widow who's sad, and it says she's weeping here, and Jesus comes and says, weep not. And then you have Jesus, who's called, you know, in the scriptures of Isaiah, he's the man of many sorrows. It's funny how Jesus was also anointed with the oil of gladness, but he also had a, 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 a tendency to, to be a man of sorrow, even weeping at the tomb of, of Lazarus. Um, remember when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? They said, some people think you're Jeremiah the prophet. What would give you that indication? Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. And so I think sometimes Jesus was mistooken, mistaken for uh, the weeper, uh, Jeremiah. A kind of interesting thing there. Jesus had a compassionate heart. Um, and um, there's other things to notice in here. Notice that he touches, as it's called here in the King Jimmy, the, the, the buyer or the, the coffin. Um, the word buyer, the Hebrew word that's used here can be a box, but it also can be a sort of a stretcher that the dead bodies put on. Uh, it depends on the context. But uh, basically it's a movable frame on which a coffin or a corpse is placed before the burial um, when the body is carried to the grave. It, it, it seems here that he doesn't touch the dead body. That's kind of an interesting thing. He only touches the, either the coffin or the, or the stretcher, uh, if you would. Um, um, why do you think he wouldn't touch the dead? Well, that was actually against the Jewish law. And Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. Now, remember the traditions versus the laws? One of the traditions that came out of the Jews' oral traditions was not only could you not touch the dead body, but you also couldn't touch the coffin or the buyer or the stretcher thing. You'd be unclean technically if you did that as well. So by Jesus touching that, the Pharisees would have went, oh, he's unclean. Like he just broke the law. Um, that's something that's noteworthy here in this story. Um, breaking the law by touching the dead, Jesus came uh, and fulfilled the law. Don't, don't be mistaken on that one. But when Jesus raises uh, someone from the dead, I also wanna show something that he uses great specificity. What do you mean? Whenever Jesus tells someone to arise, he always mentions their name. And I think that's an important thing. Um, what if Jesus just said at the tomb of Lazarus, if he just walked to the whole graveyard and said, come forth. <laughs> Would everybody have come forth? I don't know. But I like how Jesus said, Lazarus, second tomb from the right. He didn't say that part, but he said, Lazarus. He said, come forth, and Lazarus came bouncing out with his 
grave clothes. And he said, come on, take, uh, take his grave clothes off him so I can walk. Um, in the same way, he says to this guy, he says, young man, uh, he says, young man, I say to thee, arise. Uh, maybe they're near the cemetery and Jesus was being very specific. I mean, can you imagine having that kind of power on the tip of your tongue just to speak life? Oh, I didn't mean everybody. Everybody get back in the grave except for you. It's my bad. You know, it's like back to heaven you go or wherever you were before him. Um, the young man. Now, here's another thing. Does Jesus talk to someone who can't hear him? Did, when Jesus says, young man, does he just, is he doing that for theatrical? Because the guy's dead. Can he hear him? Well, as it turns out, I don't believe Jesus is playing a game here. I think the guy can hear him. I just don't think he's in the body. Um, see, that's kind of an important thing here. I, uh, I think that one thing that's kind of curious about this is even when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he's talking to Lazarus, who's dead, which means Jesus can speak to the dead because of, he's Jesus. Um, this is kind of an interesting thing, but he says, young man, and the young man heard him. It um, reminds me of Isaiah chapter 55, Verse 11, where it says uh, prophetically, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it, uh, it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Now, before you go off saying, right, I can talk to the dead just like Jesus. Uh, you can't. Um, you can't talk to the dead just like Jesus. Um, Jesus is the one who has the power to speak and his word doesn't go out void. Uh, that's kind of an important thing. When you die, you don't just cease to exist. Um, yeah, but wh where is your body? Uh, your body's in the ground, but where, the question is, where is your soul? I liken it to software and hardware. Your body's the hardware, your soul is the software with no mass. Isn't it amazing? Uh, when even the computer analogies kind of, it actually sort of works. Because your computer, you know, your iPhone has all kinds of information in it. Uh, you know, how much does your iPhone weigh? And then if you took all the information and erased everything on your, on your iPhone, would it change in weight? Um, there are some scientists that say yes, by the way. Um, that, I, that's a whole nother study. I'm not even gonna go into that. But um, not a noticeable, discernible weight by anybody for that matter. But um, huge files with no mass, lots of stuff, substance you can carry in your pocket, but you can empty all that out and suddenly all you have is just hardware. It's just a, a empty sort of shell of which once was, by the way, fun fact, it takes more computing power by far to run the old, it's an old game now called Angry Birds on your iPhone. If anybody still plays that, it takes more power, computing power to run Angry Birds on your phone than the, they had to land, needed to land humans on the moon on the Apollo 11 mission. The Apollo uh, mission, 11 mission had a computer with 32,768 bits of RAM memory. Um, the original Angry Bird game had one gigabyte of RAM or 8,589,934,592 bits. Um, Angry Birds used a lot more uh, computing power than landing the Apollo 11 mission on the, you know, but it's, it's all just software uh, and then the hardware. I, I think that that's an interesting comparison in the sense that, you know, this guy's body's being carried, but when he says, young man, where is he speaking? Well, you know, Jesus, you know, is speaking, uh, you know, on a multidimensional level, I believe. He's able to speak into heaven and earth and all the universe, um, because that's who Jesus is. But he spoke to the soul of the young man and it seems like the soul of the young man heard him. Um, it reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 that says, therefore we 
are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So um, I like how this guy, Jesus just calls out, young man, and he's like, yeah, over here. Where, I wonder where the young man was. Um, I think we can be fairly sure he was somewhere in Abraham's bosom. For you Bible students, you know where that is. It's not heaven, it's not hell, but it's paradise and Hades, which is kind of a similar place. Read Luke chapter 16 or go back and listen to our Luke 16 study because we talk all about that. But that's where these, time, these people at those times would have been. It's different today. But be that as it may, so this, this, this is the raising of the dead and man, rumor starts going around. Wow, this guy is raising people up from the dead and Jesus's fame goes a long way. Now in verse 18, this really brings us to um, uh, the next uh, section, the perplexed prophet. And that's why we're set up in verse 18. And the disciples of John, John the Baptist, showed him all of these things. The disciples said, man, John the Baptist, guess what? Jesus just raised this guy. There was a funeral procession out of Nain. And he said, you know, young man, arise. And the guy sat up and got up off his stretcher. And uh, it was amazing. Now, here's where poor Jay the bee is just like us. You know, you almost forget John the Baptist was a human until you get to this part of the story. Because already we know he's the greatest man ever born among women. He's this guy with, you know, locust legs twitching between his teeth. He's out in the wilderness uh, with honey and camel skins and just kind of this amazing guy baptizing multitudes. <coughs> we all kind of love John the Baptist. But he had a problem that you and I have. Poor John the Baptist, at this time he's now imprisoned. And we're gonna see that. Let's take a look. It says there uh, in verse 19, this is where we have the perplexed prophet. It says, verse 19, and John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, art thou he that should come or look we for another? <coughs> Excuse me. So the big question, now, now, does this sound like John the Baptist? Doesn't sound typical. This is the same John the Baptist when he saw Jesus walking on the shore of the Jordan River. He said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But now, He's saying, are you the one? Um, John the Baptist, there's no internet in jail, uh, unlike a lot of our jail system prisons, and no ping pong, no TV, no weight room. He's just sitting in a dungeon. Uh, by the way, John is incarcerated at Macaris, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea, <coughs> where he'd eventually be beheaded, um, Mark chapter six, verses 26 through 29, and his head would be given to Herodias, which... John, you know, John's got this downtime in this prison. He's, he's just sitting around in this sort of dungeon-like setting. Um, you know, and prophets weren't, uh, by the way, constantly, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Remember that, Jesus said that. Um, but they were, they were not constantly hearing from God. I think that's what sometimes people think. Oh, those prophets, I wish I was like them, constantly hearing from the Lord. That's not the way it rolled. Most prophets heard from God once every 20 years. Daniel. The story of Daniel, Daniel 9, chapter one through 12 is Daniel hearing words from the Lord and just doing all these wonderful things. But if you spread it out in the right time frame, Daniel heard from the Lord once every 20 years in his lifetime. That's pretty spread out. And we as Christians, well, I haven't heard from the Lord for a couple of weeks. It's, it's been really, I feel really dry and I'm going through a season of dry time. Two, two, two weeks, I haven't heard. See, we have the word of God and you, we can hear from the Lord whenever we want just by reading the scriptures. Um, but sometimes you do go through dry times. Here's John the Baptist, 
and the prophet, the greatest man ever born among women, doubting. Um, uh, this is kind of an interesting thing here. He's doubting. Now there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. I'll show you that perhaps as we get a little further on this. But, but um, you know, John's going through a, a sort of a downtime. Uh, it reminds me of the prophets of the Old Testament. You know, Jeremiah went through some downtimes where he was left in a pit of mud in a dungeon where they were gonna leave him to die. Uh, it's kind of a horrible, poor Jeremiah. Jeremiah pouted and he said, I refuse to speak to the word of the Lord anymore. I'm done being a prophet. I'm hanging up my prophet you know, hat and I'm just gonna be a normal dude from here on out. And you remember what Jeremiah said after that? He, he said, but I had a burning in my bones to, to speak the word of God. Like he couldn't get away from it. Uh, even though he felt really bummed, even Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, while nobody listened to him in his 42 years of ministry, not one person listened to Jeremiah, not one time. What a discouraging work that would have been. Everybody hated him. He, he died, we don't really know, the Bible doesn't tell us how he died, but uh, history claims that the last place we see Jeremiah is he went down reluctantly to Egypt with the rest of the Jews that were running uh, from Babylon, if you remember that whole story. And there in Egypt, his own countrymen stoned him to death because they didn't like him because he was always speaking the truth. Kind of interesting. But you know, you think, oh, that poor guy, Jeremiah, man, he's ready to hang it up. And here's John the Baptist. You kind of wonder, is he at a place? He's been sitting in a you know, dungeon um, and nobody seems to care. Jesus is out doing all these great things and John the Baptist sends his disciples, is, is he the one? Are we sure? Did we get that right? Or like he's going through this time, you know, of, of doubt. Um, it's, a, it's a sad time for him. I've had times like that in ministry myself. Um, not as much here. I feel like the Lord's blessed so much, but in my earlier years of ministry, especially as a youth pastor, there'd be times where you just kind of have down times. I remember uh, there was one ministry that I had where um, I was, you know, um, every Sunday night for eight years, I watched the two and a half to five-year-old classroom. Every night, every Sunday night for two, eight years, two and a half to five-year-old. And you know, two, why two and a half? People that don't know children's ministry, two and a half is the mark where you're supposed to be potty trained. In, 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 our, in our nursery, if, if your kid's potty trained, they get to go in the two and a half-year-old class. But if they're not potty trained, they still need to go back in the other one. Even if they're 10 years old, they still need to be in the pre. It's like, it's kind of hard. You're not set up for changing diapers in the two and a half and upward class. But sometimes parents were a little optimistic, if you know what I mean. But man, it was, our church was packed full of people. And I remember that, you know, there'd be like 40 to 50, two and a half to five-year-olds in one room every Sunday night. And you'd go in the room and you just, it just, it was like steamy kid's breath. You just smell, air was thick with kid's breath. You children's ministry people know what I'm talking about. If you want to know what that smells like, go up into our tents after a Wednesday night. Uh, just walk in and you'll smell it, kid's breath, uh, steamy. Uh, it's kind of part of the deal. They're running around having a good time, but it's, it's a smell. It's not, not pleasant. <laughs> but I remember sitting there, what am I doing with my life? Eight years. And there were times where I, I was wanted to send disciples, tell me, am I, you know, is this the right place or the wrong place, Lord? Am I doing what you, like, I, you go through times of doubt. And this is poor John the Baptist. And don't feel bad if you find yourself in that situation. Different, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Different leaders had moments. Um, Moses was ready to quit in Numbers 11, verses 10 through 15. Elijah 
thought he was the only prophet left alive in 1 Kings chapter 19. I alone am the only prophet of the Lord. And the Lord says, uh, actually there's 7,000 people. That, uh, you're wrong. You're not, you know, wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo kind of thing. <laughs> Jeremiah, I'm not gonna speak of the word anymore. Jeremiah 20 verses seven through nine and 14 through 18. But the burning of the bones came back and that's, that's what happens oftentimes. Doubt is a matter of the mind, whereas unbelief is a matter of the will and the heart. I don't believe John the Baptist had the, uh, the heart issue as much as perhaps just he was you know, battling it out in his mind. Am I, is this, I'm sitting here in prison. Is this the right thing? Did I miss something is basically what he's saying there. You know, should we look for another one? You know, John doesn't have access to what's going on outside of his prison cell. So um, the answer of Jesus is a little bit shocking. Uh, verse 20, let's read. It says, when the men were come to him, they said, John the Baptist, um, John Baptist has sent us to thee saying, art thou he that we should, that should come or look we for another? And in the same hour, he, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said to them, go your way, tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whose, whosoever shall not be offended in me. This is an interesting word. It kind of seems uncaring a little bit, but Jesus is, is wanting John the Baptist to get something that's big. Um, you know, he didn't directly answer him at first, but Jesus shows him what he's doing. And, and when Jesus says, blessed is he who's not offended, in me, um, what's the idea? Well, see, why would anybody be offended in Jesus? He's healing the sick and doing all this stuff. Well, the idea of offended is the word, it's the same word that we talk about in the Greek, skandalizo, a stumbling block or an impediment along the way, which causes other people to trip, to be tripped up or stumbled by. Um, could it be that John the Baptist, like so many others, thought, well, Jesus, he is the Messiah that's gonna take away the sins of the world, but he had somewhat of a, second coming of Christ's view of what Jesus would be rather than his first coming. Remember, the Jews really didn't understand the two advents. They were thinking, man, he's gonna come and rule and reign as king of the Jews and he's gonna take over and, you know, they had a view. I wonder if John the Baptist was sort of saying, when are you gonna do the kingdom stuff? Um, but see, those guys don't understand. And Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who's not offended in the fact that I'm not coming to be the the king over all of Israel. I'm coming to be as the king dying for the sins of the whole world. And that's why they would be offended by Jesus. He's not doing what was in their mind of what Jesus was supposed to be doing, which he will do by the way in his second coming. But um, Jesus, you say, well, this, this is kind of brutal. He's just saying, well, look at all the stuff I'm doing. But can I just say, Jesus is giving empirical evidence by observing but he's also showing scriptural evidence that he is the Messiah. Um, this is something that a Jew would not miss. The reason they would think that he's the Messiah is because the prophets told about what the Messiah would do. Let me give you, you can jot these down real quick if you're fast. Isaiah 26, 19. These are prophets, uh, prophecies given about Jesus. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise and wake and sing. He, should, he that dwell in the dust for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. This is speaking of the Messiah that would make this happen. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, 
and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Um, uh, Isaiah 35, five, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Isaiah 61, verses one and two, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord that hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty of the captive to the captives, the opening of the, um, of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord, the day of vengeance upon our God, to comfort all that mourn. Um, this is that verse he read partially in, uh, remember when, in Luke where we read him, he read this in the synagogue, but he only read the first part of this because the second part of this is the day of vengeance of our God. Um, that's the part John the Baptist was wondering about. But Jesus was doing everything before it said that, but this is why they were confused. You can understand why these guys might've been a little confused about why Jesus was doing what he's doing. So John's question is being answered by what Jesus is doing, fulfilling the prophecies concerning the Messiah, especially from the book of Isaiah. Well, verse 24 goes on. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. He said, what went ye out into the wilderness for to see a reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see a man clothed in soft, Raymond, <clears throat> um, I talked about this in Matthew, um, by the way, uh, this soft raiment. And it, it, it's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. Um, he says, were you looking for a guy like, like these other guys dressed in like feminine clothing? That's kind of an interesting thing. Jesus is kind of poking fun at the Pharisees who had their fancy garments. He's saying, what are you trying to find? Some guy with sort of girly clothing, in soft clothing? Verse, uh, verse goes on, behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's courts. Were you looking for somebody like that out there? No, not in John the Baptist. But verse 26, what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For so I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Um, we talked about this just a couple weeks ago. Um, but John the Baptist, you say, but Brett, why didn't Jesus say that when John the Baptist dudes were still there? That would have been a nice little addition. Hey, check out all the stuff Jesus is doing. Oh, by the way, he said you're the greatest dude that's ever lived. A little FYI, that'd be nice for Jay the Bee and the prison cell. But that was not for John the Baptist to hear. For some reason, Jesus knew that John shouldn't get that message. Maybe he'd get a big head. Um, that's not a funny joke when you're talking about John the Baptist. But anyway, because um, he's about to be beheaded. Um, but, but John the Baptist, for some reason, Jesus needed to leave him kind of there with that, just trust, just have faith. I'm doing what is fulfilling the prophet of Isaiah. And so just, just stay strong, John the Baptist. Then this guy's took off. And now Jesus is saying to all the other people, yeah, he's the greatest dude ever born among women. But what's this thing? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What makes anybody who's part of the kingdom, which if you're a Christian today, you're accepting Jesus as, as your savior. You're asking Christ to fill your life, Christ in you. And you have the king of kings in you which makes you part of the kingdom of the Lord. His kingdom is still yet to come. We're supposed to pray for that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But if you're a Christian, you have Christ in you, the King of Kings. So does that make you better than John the Baptist? The answer is yes. 
How are we better than John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist was still in the Old Testament prophet days. We get to live in a whole new um, dispensation. We live in a time where we're saved by grace through faith and Christ has declared us righteous. It's one of the most glorious things. It's not because we're better than John the Baptist. It's because we live in a time that's so much better where we're saved by God's grace through faith. Um, this is such a huge thing. So I love this great message that Jesus is giving. Um, you know, uh, Matthew says the same thing, uh, you know, about being greater, no one's greater than, than John the Baptist, unless you come to the time where the, you become part of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew says the same thing. So John the Baptist, greater than Moses, greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah, greater than even Abraham. That's what Jesus is saying. The Jews would have really uh, flipped out over this. <clears throat> but I love that John the Baptist wasn't fancily dressed. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't what everybody looks for in a religious leader of that day, uh, daintifully in fancy little clothes that were too feminine but in camel skins, uh, that's, that's the guy. Watch out for that. Um, you know, I think sometimes, uh, a lot of times we can think that some guy's great because his nice fancy dressing or his presentation, but John the Baptist didn't go with the flow on that. And I think sometimes we, we miss the wolves in sheep's clothing just because they're dressed fancy or some pastor or some ministry has a fancy deal of wealth or whatever. Watch out for that. I think there's a, 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 a real danger to that. But, um, but Jesus waited, didn't, didn't uh, say these nice things until his disciples left. Verse 29, and all the people that heard him uh, and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. This uh, phrase justified by uh, justified God, what does that mean? It, it sounds a little weird, but it, it basically translates. It means they believed God. They believed in what John the Baptist was preaching of repentance and they reconciled in their mind that John was right and that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is a good thing that's happening in verse 29. They've, they've, the, the word justified God, it means that they're basically saying that's right. We, we see that that's right, that Jesus is the Messiah. Unlike the Pharisees, verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. So that was the difference. The multitudes were believing in Jesus, the Pharisees, the, the lawyers and all those guys, they were rejecting um, and would not accept Christ. Well, verse 31, and the Lord said, whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another saying, we have piped unto you and um, you have not danced. We have mourned to you and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he hath a devil. You, were, you know, he's speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. You guys rejected John the Baptist. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man, and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Jesus is basically saying, you know, by the way, he was accused by these guys of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. Did Jesus drink wine? Yes. Was it Welch's grape juice? No. Did Jesus drink in excess? No. Did he become drunk with the wine? No. This, the Bible's clear on this stuff. Was Jesus a glutton? He was always invited over to people's house eating. We're seeing him eat all the time. Um, but uh, did he eat in excess? No. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, gluttony is a sin and people say, Pastor Brett, should we have a talk? It's always interesting to me on that one because, you know, I would quit cold turkey. I would stop eating. 
but it's, it's a little different than cocaine. You can quit cocaine cold turkey. And then I, I know people that are spiritually, this, like you know, people that I know who are cool people and they eat more than I do, but they're still stick skinny. My dad can out me any day of the week and my dad's tall and slender uh, and I was cursed. <laughs> my metabolism is nothing like my dad's. Um, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, I have a good friend, Kirk Daly. Uh, he probably would have played in the NBA, except he, he, he could never get over that 215 mark, you know? 6'9", six, six, 215. Uh, he ended up playing like in the Athletes in Action with, uh, with guys like A.C. Green, one of my best buddies. Uh, great basketball player, but just never, but that guy could out-eat anybody I know, man. Just, just food, just, you know. Uh, so what's the, the deal? I, I don't know, and I'm not gonna say, you know, um, but one thing I, I would be careful about, maybe I'm just defending all the fat people in here, <laughs> but uh, be careful on this, this sort of legalistic thing about fat people. Uh, I do think it is kind of a funny thing. I've lost 100 pounds like three times in my life uh, and uh, you know, gained it back. Um, I know how to lose weight. Uh, it's hard to keep it off. But for me, it's, you know, it's really an interesting thing. For me to lose weight, I have to go to about a 1,200 calorie uh, you know, I don't write me, Brett, you can have all the carnivore diet. You can eat as many steaks as you want. Uh, there's, uh, don't send me stuff. I, I, already, I already got a lot of stuff, people. Brett, here's why you're overweight. And they give me all this stuff. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It, it is a struggle. And I, I do kind of, I do kind of laugh because uh, people that come and talk to me about that, how can you be a pastor? and sit up there and talk about the Bible. Like people have come and talked to me about that stuff. And I'll just say, um, because every pastor that I know has something they wrestle with, every single pastor. Mine just happens to maybe show, and I might even argue that my struggle, uh, like, like some of you skinny people would eat me under the table. If you know me, you know that's probably true, some of you guys. But it, it's a funny thing how you know, people will accuse people and see things, be careful on that one, let me just say that. Um, now, don't write letters, don't give a Google review, uh, whatever. Um, you can if you want, I guess, uh, but it makes, I think it makes you look bad, honestly, so I'm just gonna say that. But you know what's interesting about Jesus? He was tempted in all points like as we are, even in the area of, of eating, which is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, we have Hebrews 7:26, such a high priest that became a, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So even though the Pharisees were accusing him of you know, doing all the sinful stuff, gluttony and wine bibber and all that stuff, he'd never done those things. But this verse 35 is the key. But wisdom is justified of all her children. It's the same word justified that's used in verse 29. When the people uh, and all those publicans and sinners justified God, which means they said Jesus is the, the Messiah. In the same way, justified of her children. I like how the ESV puts verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. In other words, the people who are truly wise, they're gonna see wisdom proven right. Um, where is the good fruit? And not in the religious leaders, the publicans and sinners said, we see the good fruit in Jesus. So they were saying Jesus is the right one, the Pharisees are the wrong one. That's this idea of wisdom being proven by her children kind of thing. Well, you have, we're almost done here. You have the dying servant, the grieving widow, the perplexed prophet. These are the, but the last of the group here is a repentant sinner. And we pick that up in verse 36. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, and one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him and went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Now, should you be a little nervous about going to the Pharisee's house? Probably. Jesus wasn't nervous, I'm sure, but, and behold, a woman in the city, 
which was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment <clears throat> and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Uh, by the way, this is not the Mary of Bethany, similar story, John 12, one through eight. This is not Mary Magdalene, similar story, Luke 8, two and Mark 16, nine. This is a different woman with a different story. Um, the study, we, we talked about the different Marys in the previous studies, but um, this is, this is, there's some differences here. She's dealing only with his feet. The others dealt with his head and his feet. This is happening at a different place at Simon the Pharisee's house. Others happen at Mary and Martha's house and what have you. So there's some differences to this story. Don't confuse this with other stories of women at the feet of Jesus. But let's do note, isn't it interesting that it's always women that were at the feet of Jesus? That's something that I admire in the women of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> but do understand that worship um, is best often demonstrated by these women of these stories. I, I just love that. Um, but don't make a mistake, brothers, that worship is not just a womanly thing. Somewhere along the way, it's become that. I think that there's a lot of guys that think, well, you guys that are worshipers, that's kind of a girly thing. No. Um, do you think David was a girly man? David of the Old Testament? Um, need I tell you stories about David cutting the foreskins off of a bunch of Philistines and bringing a bag of foreskins and throwing it down? Like, do you remember that story? Uh, not as manly of a thing as I've ever think has ever happened on the planet Earth. Um, I'm just telling you the highlights. Uh, that's just one. I could go on. But while David was a man's man and a war, war hero, uh, you know, SEAL Team 6 level kind of fighter guy, um, at the same time, it says he danced with all his might before the Lord in 2 Samuel 6.14. He wrote praise songs and psalms to the Lord. Uh, men should be worshiping, men should be leading in worship, I believe. Um, it's great to see, you know, ironworks, even we're gonna see um, uh, one coming up on November 11th, uh, ironworks where I love it when the brothers are get together and we worship the Lord together. There's something about that that's just really kind of cool. I like seeing men that know how to worship and don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It's the way to go. Um, but we have here a typical man's response in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, invited him over, saw it, he spake within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Um, here's this prostitute that comes in. And he's thinking to himself, well, if he's really a prophet, he knows that she's a prostitute. My question is, how does Simon the Pharisee know she's a prostitute? <laughs> um, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, what this guy's probably willing to appear like at daytime versus what he did at nighttime. That's the way of humanity. Um, but um, Jesus knows what's in his heart, it says there. Verse, um, verse 40, Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee, and he saith, Master, say on. And then Jesus, Jesus goes into this. He says, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love, the love him the most? Simon answered and said, I suppose he that to whom forgave the most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. 
My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they, began, uh, they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. Ha, I love this story. This is the way of Jesus, forgiving the horrible, wretched, miserable sinner. But what a good reminder, the Pharisee is the loser in this story. We even wonder, is this guy even really saved? But the woman who was the prostitute and had many sins, she loved Jesus, she followed Jesus. I've noticed that people have come out of hard backgrounds and horrible sinful lifestyles. It's amazing how they love Jesus. You show me that people have lived like that, they're oftentimes the ones that are worshipers in the church. They're the ones that are not afraid to lift their hands before God and sing with their voices. Um, but it's kind of a Pharisee that sits there and goes, what's that person over there, you know? lifting their hands in the front row. Why is that woman swaying back and forth when she's, what is she washing the windows when she's worshiping God? If that's you sitting critically, should I call you Simon the Pharisee? Because that's a pharisaical kind of attitude. Hopefully none of us are those. Those who've been forgiven much, love much. What a truth, what a good reminder. Well, we'll pick it up here in chapter eight, coming up, uh, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. It's living and powerful. And as we look at this chapter, Lord, I pray that we just take in the things you want us to receive. But of all the things, I love how, Lord, you minister to those that are hurting, whether it's John the Baptist, the poor widow. Um, Lord, we're, we're thankful that you raise the dead and heal the sick of the centurion's servant. But of all the things, I think we can most relate to this woman at the end where she's a, a prostitute, a sinner, I think we can relate to her the best because we're all sinful, we all fall short, no one's worthy or righteous, but how thankful we are that you're the forgiver of sin and that like this woman, you can make us go away whole because of the work of the cross. We're so thankful for that. Make us joyful, Lord, because of that, I pray. And then give us a new hunger and a thirst for righteousness, I pray. So bless the people who've taken this time on this Wednesday night to study your word. Bless them, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.